You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Laird Barron is the author of the short story collections The Imago Sequence in Other Stories and Occultation in Other Stories, the novels The Light in the Darkness and The Croning. His forthcoming short story collection from Nightshade Books is The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All. Thank you for joining me, Laird. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Laird, you say the deepest cavern in the world is the human heart, and I think that's a great insight into the way you proceed in your fiction? Well, I I think, and you see it more so in uh, my second collection and my novels, the, the inner workings of the human being, whether it be our emotional framework or just things that we're capable of. And I think that there are untold depths to the human heart. It's a little bit of a paradox. I I like to work in cosmic horror. I have worked in cosmic horror for a few years now. And I like the idea that the macroscopic and the microscopic are really just a ring. It's basically like a slinky pulling itself through itself, you know, as above, so below. One of the things that I think uh, interests me is, is in your books, your protagonists are very, these are manly men and men of various stripes. And I think that you give us a really interesting insight into the male psyche, writing about these confrontations with the, the indifference of the universe. It's partially a product of write what you know, what you've experienced. I don't, at least in the first couple of collections, I didn't so much draw on what I know as to put it on the page, but allow it to inform my work and I was raised under very harsh circumstances we lived in the the bush up in Alaska for a, a good deal of my my childhood and even after I left home I did a lot of work on fishing trawlers and at can in canneries and construction sites and you name it very blue collar sort of rugged lifestyle you know complicated by the fact that uh, the environment in Alaska is 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 extremely harsh and it attracts a certain kind of person. And it kind of, actually, I sort of chuckle because, you know, some of my stories, it's quite, you know, obvious. You're, you're writing about a Pinkerton agent or, a, or a, uh, an enforcer, you know, a mob, a mafia enforcer. Obviously, those are, those are tough guys. Uh, they're archetypal tough guys. But it kind of, it amuses me because even sometimes when I'm writing about characters that are, I don't consider them tough guys. I consider them a type of person that I ran into in a into in Alaska all the time. So, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting interesting to me that the average person really doesn't have a lot of experience with someone who has the mentality of, oh, I'm going to go out and go hunting for survival or that kind of thing. And so even when I'm not writing about archetypal hard cases, even my gentler characters have a tendency to be informed by the people that I ran into in Alaska. And they happen to be a breed of heart, I think, in a lot of ways. It strikes me that uh, your upbringing in Alaska informs a lot of your work in terms of the import of the landscape and the power of the landscape and the stark unfriendliness of the landscape. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Having lived my first 25 years in Alaska and then basically escaping, sort of how I term my departure from the state, it's really 
I'm very sensitive to landscape and the moods of the landscape wherever I go now, whether it's an urban setting or, or uh, in the wilderness. And I became much more attuned to, you know, what was going on around me. And the thing about Alaska is it has almost this magnetic sort of ominous kind of aura about it, if you pay attention. There was a lot of cases when I was growing up. I mean, it was a very violent place. It was remarked upon how violent Anchorage, which is the big city up there, that a town of 250,000 people in a state out of a state with only 550,000 people, you know, we led the nation in the dubious distinction of having, you know, per capita the highest violent crime rate in the United States for you know, several years running. And I don't think it has so much to do with even the kind of pioneer or almost frontier kind of lifestyle. There's something else that sort of goes on up there, and I think that doesn't really explain how wacko people go or how brooding a lot of people become. I think it has a lot more to do with the kind of frontier that it is and the extremes of light and darkness in the summertime, you know, you, you won't get any darkness in July, maybe a twilight, and then in the wintertime, you know, you hit January, or excuse me, December, and you're talking about the sun rising at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, for full light, and then it's dark again by 4. And I think that, uh, I think that messes with people's heads quite a bit. And so it made, it made quite an impression on me, and I... Uh, I couple that with uh, the fact that when I was growing up, I read a lot of um, of the pulps and a lot of the classics by, say, Mock and, and Blackwood and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, and in quite obviously landscape in a lot of those older books really is almost a central character of the narrative. I, I'd like you to talk a, a little bit about your, you know, evolution as a writer. You you're growing up in, in Alaska. Uh, were were you interested in writing from the beginning? I mean, were you writing as you were involved in some, uh, like, the fishing, uh, while you were fishing? Did you come home from a, a day of, like, Arctic ice fishing to sit in front of a typewriter? Well, yes and no. Actually, I fished in the summertime. Uh, in the wintertime, we ran sled dogs. Uh, I raced the... When I was in my early 20s, I actually uh, raced the Iditarod three times, which is the big which is the big race up there if you're into sled dogs. But from an early age, I was interested. Uh, Before I could even actually uh, legitimately read, I was trying to write. And I wrote my first story when I was five or six years old. And then uh, one of my teachers, I think in second grade, uh, we had an assignment to write something, and I wrote this 2,500-word epic instead of a paragraph, and she took it home and, and typed it out for me. And, you know, and uh, after that, we moved out into the into the bush, uh, and I kind of wrote as an escape. I wrote my first novel uh, when I was eight years old, nine years old. It took me about two years to write it, uh, and it was about three, four hundred pages, uh, handwritten. And I just sort of took off from there. Uh, I fell out of touch with it for a few years uh, when, when, when my career racing sled dogs really took off uh, when I was 18, 19 years old. I started seriously training for competitive um, sled dog racing, and so writing was something that I did a few hours every day, you know, at least diddling around with stuff, but I, you know, I, I kind of fell out of it for a few years after that, but probably um, around 21, 22, I didn't 
I didn't write seriously again until uh, I was 28, 29. And, you know, by then I had moved out of Alaska and, and, moved, and moved into Seattle and uh, had completely changed my life and gotten away from sled dogs. And I decided that it was time to get back into, get back into writing. But, yeah, when I was a kid, I would do chores all day and run sled dogs and then at night would uh, sit by a kerosene lamp and, and write. And actually often I would write, after everybody went to bed, I would uh, turn on a flashlight and scribble a few more pages. Now, you're well known for your short story collections, and but you have two novels out. I'd like you to talk about uh, the difference between those two formats for you, because actually, to a degree, the beautiful thing that awaits us all has uh, some of the some of the parts of that could actually slot into the croning and, and they kind of go back and forth and the beautiful thing that awaits us all also almost has the feel of a novel. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very pertinent observation um, because it, it is sort of interesting for me to look at it in the sense that I, I prefer writing short fiction, but I write short fiction as if I'm writing pieces of a novel. If you look at my collections, they're not... A story here or there maybe is a one-off, and you can certainly read any of my stories independent of the others. There's no, I structure them so that it doesn't matter if you've ever read another one. But I kind of put my collections together as mosaics, you know, and distinct from a fix-up. You know, I really have no interest in, like, stringing them all together and turning them into a novel. But I like the effect that if you read a collection or if you even read all three of my collections, you get this, get this uh, feeling that you're reading something maybe bigger than an individual story or even a, a, a disparate collection of stories. They all somehow tie into each other, and, and not just in recurring characters or recurring themes, but that there's something deeper going on, that there's uh, sort of a reinforcement of things that have come before that are maybe a subterranean kind of um, evolution uh, Subterranean was exactly the word I was looking for, and I, what interests me is the way that this um, echoes on a fictional level what's happening in the stories, in, in the world that you're creating, is happening in your fiction as well. So you have this kind of uh, metafictional reinforcement happening between the way your fiction fits together and what's happening within the fiction. Yeah, and I try really hard to do that. It's a, it's a it was a conscious decision that I made, you know, at least 10 years ago. I didn't, I have no, I actually enjoy collections by uh, other authors that are, uh, this is a science fiction story, and then they follow it up with a fantasy, and then a horror story, and then a couple others. I, I don't have any problem with that, but it, I wasn't really interested in doing that. I, I, I was very ambitious, and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to do something. I'm going to challenge myself. And, and do something that's more complicated. Example, uh, and the beautiful thing that awaits us all, if you'll notice, the first story is Blackwood's Baby, which is a hunting story. Seven guys are hunting. The next to the last story is also a hunting story. And there's always a risk when you do, you know, and there's seven guys in that one, and it's they very much mirror each other. And, you know, you do run the risk of, or I run the risk of, well, if you if you give it a if you give it a surface reading, it's like, oh wow, another hunting story. What are we? What's going on here? You know, that's a, sort of repeating yourself. No, the idea was that these stories are, are mirrors of each other. Um, there's actually correlations between the characters in the story that are un they're unspecified. But if you read them carefully, the um, 
protagonists in both the Men from Porlock and Blackwood's Baby are uh, related to each other. Uh, I just don't come out and explicitly say it. But there's just hundreds and hundreds of little effects like that. And um, I'm not even really, somebody asked me if I was trying to create sort of a Lovecraftian mythos, and that's really not my, I mean, that is a, a byproduct of what, of what I'm doing. Anytime you have recurring villains and you're writing cosmic horror in the Lovecraftian tradition, you sort of by default are going to be dabbling with mythos or creating a mythos. But what I'm really trying to do is is create a, um, a universe. Yeah, that's what exactly what I was going to say. It strikes me that across all your books, you're engaged in a feat of world building and that all these stories are set in the same world and it's a lot like ours. Hopefully it's not exactly like ours. <laughs> well, I, I cheat a little bit, although I don't know if cheating is the right word, but it's, and you'll see, I, I'm working on a, th- a fourth collection, which is going to be an Alaska-based collection, but we can get into that later. But the thing is, is, I'm working with the idea, actually Parallax, which is an Imago sequence, touches on it, is that most of the stories by default take place in a continuous, un- you know, a continuous universe. People are living at the same time, or they, or they are ancestors of, you know, of, of people who are, uh, you know, I'm talking about in a story. But there are a few stories, or there are times where um, I dabble with the idea that there are uh, parallel parallel universes that sort of overlap ours. And I don't mean even in a fantasy way. Uh, I've been really interested in research that's being done right now, uh, quantum physics and brain theory and stuff like that, which I have no expertise in whatsoever. It just it fascinates me. But one of the, one of the um, things that the scientists are tossing around is that there are an infinite number of universes that are just fractionally offset from ours that they're just, like a, it's like a funhouse uh, effect. So, and they're all sort of um, occurring simultaneously. And so I kind of like, you know, I like that. I, and so I, so I sort of, I don't necessarily come out and explicitly say that in my, uh, in my work, but I definitely layer it in there. That informs what I'm doing. I think that's one of the things, too, that makes your work, I think, more effective than um, other fiction of this, of this ilk, in that, even though you never really say or give us the kind of science fictional, well, don't often give us the science fictional aspect of it, it all hangs together in in a means that's not supernatural. I wouldn't necessarily describe what's happening here ever as particularly supernatural. It's, it's funny you should bring that up because I was actually writing some responses to an interview that I'm woefully late in turning in. And they asked me why I, um, the interviewer asked me why, you know, your stuff is grounded in noir and there's, it actually is ultra-realistic on many levels. A lot of the stories would actually function as or are primarily, say, a hard-boiled detective story or it's a adve- men's adventure story. But you put the supernatural in it, um, why do you return to it time and again? And my answer is, just to paraphrase it, is basically, to me, the supernatural is simply... Um, a process or mechanism or effect that we haven't quantified yet, uh, and the you know, and, and so I don't see it as something that is uh, magical or even you know mystical uh, in the way that various religious faiths would, would would term it, or 
that a fantasy author might might say, hey, this is working in a way that we all understand magic. I look at it as it may not may not be science. That's really not even the important question. The question the question is is you know is it is it something that is occurring within the natural universe that we simply don't have an explanation for. And so, you know, I try to write the stories often from the point of view of real people. How would they react to uh, things that they don't understand? An interesting thing is a lot of my readers, uh, I mean, I'm I'm gaining, I can see quite a stratification in the readers. There are people who like to read it as pure horror. I've got people who read me who really are into science fiction. And then I have, and they bring those types of explanations into stories where I haven't really given you an explanation. And then, you know, I have a third group of reader that is uh, very much, you know, the idea is that this is undiscovered um, possibility. You know, um, one of the things I know that you do use a lot, very effectively, a lot of your stories include uh, bits of noir fiction, detective fiction, and kind of hard-boiled men's adventure fiction. But uh, throughout, um, I think, all of your fiction, what makes it really great is I, the sense of the mystery genre. And we talked a little bit about this in that as I read all your stories and each one of your stories, there's the feeling that there's a bigger picture that we can't quite get and we're always putting together all the details. I'm wondering how much of this, do you have some uh, secret book that would, you know, bring about the end of the uh, no, your known universe where it to be revealed <laughs> somewhere that has all this, uh, like a Bible for your, your world? Actually, I, I made sure not to make a, a literal Bible. Um, I do keep a Bible to try to, uh, with names and dates and, um, of the various characters and places and, and things that I've done. But as far as the, you know, the secrets of what's going on, I don't really, I, I have, I've jotted down a few pages of sort of like a little, a little essay to myself about what I, at the time of my life when I started creating this, what I was, what I was going for. But um, I probably should not say too much more about that really. You know, one of the things, uh, as I say, but what I like about this is that as readers, it doesn't matter, I think, what uh, genre. I don't really, I think a lot of this, your work exists somewhat outside of genre, is that what's fun for us as readers and what's challenging is to put together the mysteries that you've drawn in in the stories. I, I think that there's all sorts of hints of this, these uh, internal connections that we can kind of see and almost see. And as a writer, when you put these into the stories, does it always come out right on the first pass, or do you have to put in more and then like carve stuff out, or do you just put in just shadows and say, oh, maybe I need a bit more? Uh, it depends on the, on the story. Um... Well, for example, uh, Men from Porlock, did that? Did you have to uh, ratchet back on that or amp it up? I wrote that. I wrote that in a white heat. I wrote that. I just sat down and wrote it. <laughs> that's something that because I had some stories that take me up to nine months to write, mm-hmm. and that's all I do is write that story. Men from Porlock, and of course, by many of my colleagues' standards, what I'm going to say is pretty hilarious. But for for me, it was extremely quick. I wrote it like in about two months. I have a lot of colleagues who go, wow, you're really taking your time on that one, Baron. But I, I didn't do a lot of rewriting compared to some of my other stories. But but other stories, like, say, the, the Lagerstadt, which is in uh, Occultation, 
that's a six-month story where wow. I just worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. So there are times where, and I would say the majority of the time, I really am caught up in a situation where I, it's not that I'm laboring to find the words, it's just that the story sort of reveals itself to me as I go along. I don't plot out stories. I'm, I'm always, I kind of rejoice when I wake up from a dream, which is where a lot of these come from, a nightmare or something like that, where I have the ending. Yes, I know where this is going. I know what's, what to do. It's easy to write to an ending, but that's probably you know a handful of my stories. The rest of the time, I have an image. Most of my stories are from some image, some nightmarish phantasm, and it makes no sense in and of itself. Uh, like to say the men from Porlock, actually, I had a nightmare about doors opening up in great big old growth trees. And so then I sat there for a few days trying to figure out what, the, what to do with that. And so I set it aside, and then I was having lunch at a um, downtown restaurant in Olympia, Washington. And it's this old, at the time it's changed hands, but it was a very old restaurant called The Spar. It had been around for, what, 80 years. And it had all these old-time blown-up photographs on the walls of loggers, from the 1880s and 90s in that area. And I said, okay, I'm going to do a story about loggers, and I'm going to tie it in with this. And I started it, but it didn't really go anywhere, so I set it aside. And about a year and a half later, somebody invited well, I was Actually, I was invited by Nightshade to participate in that book of Cthulhu. And it just, I was like, okay, what am I going to write? And I woke up the next day, and I went, that's the story. And the story just, you know, from then on, I, I blasted through it. A lot of the time, though, say the croning, you know, the novel, uh, I really have to just, I learned the trick of if I'm stuck in a situation, I leave it shadowy and then come back to it. But uh, because I've structured the universe in such a way that it feeds into itself, it has created a lot of work for me in the sense that I have to go back through and make sure that I'm not completely defying something or or, or, or overwriting something that I wrote in another story somewhere. And, and so every time I write a story now, I'm quite conscious of how it, of how it fits into the overall mosaic that I've created so far. So it's a a lot of work. I love your setting in the Olympia Peninsula and the force that, you know, drives both the croning and the beautiful thing that awaits us all. Talk about your time there and some of the, do you actually walk out into these places that you write about and then come back and write about them? Or do they just loom over your head somehow and feed into some kind of fearsome reservoir that you distill into words? Well, actually, I hiked quite a bit. Uh, Well, first of all, when I was uh, 25, I moved out of Alaska, and I lived in Seattle for a few years, and that's where I began writing again. I started writing poetry and got involved with a small but prestigious online uh, journal. What journal? uh, It was called the Melick Review, Mm -hmm. and actually Billy Collins. I was a managing editor for a little while there. I handled poetry, and... It was a very high quality, you know, it got better and better as it, as it went. And uh, shortly after I left, uh, Billy Collins, the, the famous poet, actually mentioned it in his weekly uh, address that he was doing at the time and was very favorably mentioned it uh, as a magazine. So poetry really actually helped me improve my craft because up until then I really felt like I was floundering as a fiction writer. And I buckled down for about a year when I moved to Seattle and I started writing poetry all the time. And then uh, around 2000, I moved to I moved from Seattle to Olympia, and Olympia, you know, it's a very cosmopolitan small town, 30,000, 40,000 people, but it, it's got quite the eclectic mix of people. Uh, you've got Evergreen College a few miles away, you've got the state capitol, 
You've got the the Hells Angels have a clubhouse there. I mean, you you just don't know who you're going to be rubbing shoulders with on the street. And then if you go five minutes past Walmart, you're in the woods. There's little mountain ranges that just blam. They turn into the you know they turn into the Olympic Peninsula, and you just have all these ancient hiking trails and uh, overground logging roads that just crisscross thousands of square miles of uh, I won't say virgin terrain, but definitely unpopulated. And I took my dog and went out hiking there quite a few times. And where where I lived for a long time, it's called a, a greenbelt forest stewardry subdivision. And what that meant was, if you go out your back door, you're just you're in the woods. You're in wetland, and then there's and there's hills and mountains. And so that really, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about Alaska earlier. Alaska has this really brooding, ominous, almost threatening kind of aura that I perceived while I was living there, very much a survival of the fittest kind of thing. And Washington State, which has a much softer, not necessarily friendly, but because it's wilderness. Wilderness, you have to always watch your step. You know, we're intruders there. But Washington is a much softer, much subtler kind of wilderness. It's secrets. It has secrets. Alaska never really felt like to me it had secrets. It just didn't didn't really uh, caught into my presence. Washington State, though, especially the uh, western Washington, when you get into the Olympics and whatnot, into the big uh, temperate rainforest, there's just old shacks out there. You know, you'll, you'll be hiking along, and all of a sudden you'll, you'll step on a piece of, cor- you know, rusting corrugated uh, tin, and then you'll you realize that you're standing on the foundations of somebody's trapping cabin that's completely collapsed. There was something about the synthesis of a very cosmopolitan Seattle and Olympia, Olympia with real tr- and true rugged wilderness. Uh, you had the ocean right there. It was just, uh, I fell in love with the place. I have to ask you, have any of your works been optioned? It strikes me that the men from Porlock would make a, a rock and a horror movie. Something somewhere between uh, Deliverance and uh, Predator. <laughs> uh, yep, that's actually one of my very favorites. And I, I have had interest in it, but it hasn't been optioned. Uh, I've had other stories that have been optioned. There's one and I'm not at liberty to say what's going on or what, which one it is, but one of my early stories is under contract right now. So there's been a heap of, of, of interest. It's just that nothing has you know, borne uh, fruit yet, but I cross my fingers. That'd be nice. I'd like you to uh, talk a little bit uh, about the... Uh, you know, the sense of fear in your stories. Because it, one thing I was thinking today is that the horror genre is a very interesting genre these days because a lot of it has a lot of violence in it and a lot of, you know, really, there's stuff like um, the Hannibal Lecter books, the serial killer books that involve a lot mm-hmm. of really uh, serious violence that's really awful. There are um, other books that have monsters or vampires. So there's a lot of horror but most of it isn't actually particularly scary and i don't even think it's actually even meant to be it's either off-putting um or um kind of adventurous and exciting your stuff on the other hand is actually scary and it actually sitting there the reading experience leaves one feeling a little bit off and i'm wondering if you'd like to talk about that how you achieve that effect fear is or at least some form of dread or, or, or unease is definitely um, interesting to me. 
I was afraid a lot when I was a kid. I was afraid a lot when I raced dogs. And not the kind of fear that's portrayed, I think, in popular fiction or cinema where it's paralyzing. People are, I think a lot of people, depending on what they do, are are afraid of, of various things, and they function anyway. I was just caught, I just became cognizant of the fact that I was afraid. And to me, when I started crafting horror, it makes sense for someone who is non a non-combative kind of a person, someone who's not bellicose in any way, or maybe isn't in great shape, or they're just a typical person, to of course be afraid of not only the supernatural or the or the intrusion of something that may be supernatural, but just of of the un, of, of the unfamiliar. I mean, a lot of people are afraid to travel from one place to another because they don't know how they'll be received or if if they can even hold their own there. I thought it was more interesting to put people who were kind of playing with literary um, conventions to put people who are supposed to be in charge of themselves and their surroundings in a state of jeopardy. I thought Predator, you mentioned it a minute ago, I thought that was a really fine attempt in Hollywood by Hollywood to actually try to try to do something like that. It's just that it's so over the top that you lose any sense of unease that you have in the first few pages is lost. But something like Alien or even Aliens, I thought, you know, if we're talking about film, you know, it was much more successful. And so what I said to myself is, well, I'll have a few stories like that. I'll do my Pinkerton story or I'll do my leg breaker story where these guys are larger than life and they run into stuff, you know, that, that is really unbeatable for them. And that'll be kind of fun. But the, but the scarier stories are the ones where, for me, where I could imagine my dad out there uh, as a lumberjack or maybe I'm, you know, on a fishing boat or whatever. Pretty capable guy. I used to hunt. I've taken martial arts. I boxed a little bit, uh, you know, or, excuse me, um, backyard boxing. Uh, ran, ran me a ditter rod three times. But there are stuff, there are things that frighten me. And, and so what I try to do is create situations where someone who uh, you expect especially in a book, to not be afraid unless something just absolutely horrific jumps out at them, uh, little things that create uh, unease in them and ratchet the tension in them. And you sort, of, you sort of reveal as time goes on that really none of us are, whether you have a, a, a gun or a bomb or, um, uh, or a martial artist, it doesn't really matter. Uh, you're not as safe as you think. And... I think the I think the main key to creating a situation like that is to create believable characters doing believable things. I I really work hard on um establishing atmosphere that's believable, that immerses you so that when so you can say yes, I could see myself driving down this road or or going into this bar or talking to this person so that when the crazy as hell stuff begins, you have a tendency to buy into it. You're immersed. In The Croning, you do a fabulous job of that. I really like your main character, Don. He's a little bit different from most of your characters. He's not quite as hyper-competent. And you do something pretty daring. I mean, you start out this novel, this is a novel about a man on the wrong side of 80. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit belligerent. I remember the agent that I had at the time, uh, he's since gone on to become a major editor, but very supportive man. He, he he let me do what I wanted to do, but he he definitely was panicking about the 80-year-old uh, protagonist because, you know, his interest was to, to see me 
break out commercially, and it's very difficult to do that with a with a senior citizen as your main character. But I'm I'm a bit belligerent. Uh, I'm not above writing a commercial novel. I'm I'm writing a crime novel right now, actually. But it was important to me that was the character, uh, Don and uh, Michelle, uh, that they were senior citizens. You know. and I kind of have my cake and eat it too because you do get to go back in time and see them when they were young and fresh. But it's kind of, and I, I imagine a lot of readers, and it's not really intended for a lot of readers to even to even catch on to what I'm doing, but it, it's just something I put in there. The idea is it really makes no difference whether Don's 80 and feeble and doesn't know one end of a, of a gun from the other, whether he's alone or whether he takes a, a group of his friends to go do something, to go do an expedition, or whether he's young, tough, and has a shotgun. The idea behind my universe is, and really it's not so different than ours, your your your, your material possessions aren't going to save you. Your your confidence is not going to save you. Very seldom, if ever, in my stories is it about salvation in the sense of you're going to win. Because I don't think in real life we win. Everybody goes to their grave. Uh, for me, and... and a lot of people compare me to Thomas Ligotti, which is very flattering, but I think we, we stand as antipodes. My character, I mean, both both authors, both Ligotti and myself, really do talk about, you know, the annihilation of the self. But my characters go down kicking and screaming. And, and so it, it doesn't really matter whether Don's ancient or whether he's young. That's kind of the point of it. Cosmic horror, it's important to evoke a sense of deep time and antiquity. And I think one of the things you do that's really clever in your books, and we see this in the croning and the way it kind of is entwined like vines into the beautiful thing that awaits us all, is the depth of family and how far, essentially, we all know our families go back forever, farther than we can imagine. No, that's absolutely true. Back to when they have completely different names. You know, they're almost alien, alien to us, but it's still some kind of, some kind of uh, tenuous link to them. Well, you know, the first collection, as has been noted by many critics, is sometimes, <laughs> sometimes is praised, sometimes not. Uh, it's a very masculine collection. It doesn't really deal with, it, it doesn't even really deal with family as much as occultation or uh, the beautiful thing. It was, um, it, and it was intentionally, it was about masculinity, hyper-masculinity, actually. Um, you mentioned hyper-confidence. Well, yeah, hyper-masculinity, uh, not always confident. <laughs> the second collection, I have a much broader canvas stories uh, from the point of view of female protagonists. There's a lot more typical types of, of uh, you know, people in, in typical occupations, people you might be more likely to run into, you know, less of the secret agent, Pinkerton aspect. And this third collection, and, and, and also much more, the occultation is all about love and relationships, good and bad, and kind of how they tear us apart while they're bringing us together. Uh, and this third collection is a synthesis of the first two. I'm back to my uh, great white hunters, so to speak, and secret agents and serial killers and all this stuff. But, but there's also stories in there about teachers and just, you know, everyday people. And I, what I really want to do with this third collection is, is kind of bring those first two together. And you're, but you're absolutely right. My other novel, The Light is the Darkness, family is absolutely critical in that story. It's a story of a, uh, of a very dysfunctional super, super family 
uh, or a family of super scientists. You know, and the whole plot of that one is uh, the protagonist is looking for his his lost sister and simultaneously uh, trying to avenge what's been done, you know, to, to other members of his family. Definitely uh, relationships, friendship, and family are very important to me to, to explore. I, I'm wondering about uh, the way that you um, craft your prose because it's the sentences, there are so many great sentences, there are so many, you know, beautiful paragraphs. Uh, I'd like you to just talk about, does this stuff come to you naturally, or do you carve it out of the block of granite? A little bit of both. When I was a, when I was a boy, I actually had a little bit of poetry published in the local um, newspaper. And there would be, you know, in my, in the, I wrote two novels, actually, when I was a kid, and occasionally there, were, there was the sentence that would stick out. But it's something that I've really worked hard to develop. It was there. It was always there. I, I have a tendency to think that it's like anything else. You, you have a tendency to sort of develop into whatever you're capable of developing into. There are plenty of writers who have a more transparent style, and that's their, that's their thing. And I, I have to credit the massive amount of reading I've done throughout my life, but especially in my youth. I grew up on the very Baroque stylings of guys like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard, for example. Uh, and in more recent years, you know, in my adulthood, I really got into T.D. Klein, who wrote um, The Ceremonies and Dark Gods, a collection of novellas, which is sort of, a, sort of like a Bible for me, actually. The events uh, of Porlock Farm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> events of Porlock Farm, that's right. Um, my, I think my favorite story by him is either Petey or uh, The Children of the Kingdom. Mm. But, and I'll toss out one other, one other gentleman, is Peter Straub. Um, but you take, you know, in my adult years, you know, reading Peter Straub and T.D. Klein, for example, such beautiful, just absolutely beautiful sentences that they, that they construct. Uh, for many, many years now, whenever I uh, feel sort of lost, not in a story, but just lost as a writer. You know, what am I doing? How am I? I feel kind of overwhelmed, exhausted, whatever. I'll pick up one of those two books. I'll either pick up Dark Gods or I'll pick up Ghost Story by uh, Peter Straub and just look at how these guys move characters from one scene to another, how they signal the passage of time, how they speed up or slow down the plot. You know, and then I'm, I'm okay. It's, it's like I've charged my battery. I've set it aside and I'm, I'm okay again. And in the more recent times, I... I, last 10 years or so, I, I turned to Cormac McCarthy um, and Martin Cruz Smith, who wrote Gorky Park. Those are two authors who I've, I've turned to more recently to, uh, I don't know, as a touchstone, I think, uh, to kind of find my way. But these writers, Roald Dahl uh, was another one when I was growing up. I think that reading them, and not even for analysis, although I've done certainly done that in recent years, but just really appreciating and allowing their their styles to uh, soak in, I think, has improved me immeasurably. You mentioned you were writing a mystery. You've written a number of stories that you know include lots of elements of mysteries and could be could have been published uh, pretty much in mystery magazines. Tell us a little bit about the mystery. Um, is it going to include, is it going to be part of your contiguous universe in some just shadowy, distant way? Yes. Good. <laughs> yes. 
it's a non-supernatural, non-horror. I mean, it is a legitimate. I'm not going to mess with anybody. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping my readers, my horror fans, will make the jump because there's definitely going to be dark and horrific uh, occurrences. It's definitely not a lighthearted um, book, but it's it's definitely set in the same universe. It takes place here in Washington, or excuse me, in New York, uh, upstate New York. Uh, and it's, I would actually have to classify it probably as a crime novel, but it's, it's definitely, it revolves around looking for a missing uh, person. And the protagonist is a, a very competent, sort of outside the law sort of character. So I'm playing to my strengths as much as possible. Um, like I said, I don't have to delve or dig too far into my back pocket to pull out, uh, you know, ideas based on uh, or, or characters because I've met these guys. Matter of fact, sometimes I laugh when somebody complains about how much drinking or drug use or just over-the-top behavior, hedonistic behavior, some of my characters indulge in. So I'm going, well, I'm I'm actually trying to edit it for believability, for believability because if you met some of these guys, you would, <laughs> you, you would uh, be quite shocked at just uh, how durable they are and how much they can, uh, how much how much self-abuse that they're uh, capable of inflicting upon themselves. One of the things that that I I really enjoy about your books is your monsters <laughs> that there are, and I'd like you to talk about carving them. How you um, feel when you do that is that something? Do you know what they are beforehand, or do you discover them in the narrative, and do they arise out of the language? Uh, both. It depends. But when I when I first came up with the children of old leech, recurring villains in at least three of my stories, four of my stories, they obviously were unknown to me. And I had many a creepy night, 2 o'clock in the morning, working out on the on the computer, you know, just what they were. And actually it took me at least three stories to really understand what they, what they are. I don't always end up knowing 100% what the monsters are, but I will tell you this about monsters. I think that sometimes monsters, there's no problem with the monster being a, a metaphor or, or something about the monster being allegorical, but generally speaking, uh, I cleave to the tradition that the monster, while it may represent many things, is a monster. That's very important to me. Um, actually, one of the guys, one of my contemporaries who I really, really, really respect, uh, named John Langan, he, uh, I think he's one of the finest horror writers, uh, contemporary horror writers uh, going. He actually deals with more monsters than I do. He, and, he, and he likes to res, he likes to renovate werewolves and vampires, uh, and not some strange permutation of them generally, but like really, you know, you're really dealing with a werewolf. You're really dealing with an archetypal mummy, whatever. And His we, mummy we story is that. incredible. <laughs> What's that? His mummy story is incredible. Oh yeah, on School Island. Yeah, that's one. You know, and that's one of his first. Well, wait do you get a load of his new collection. He has a new collection coming out this uh, spring, and it is, well, dare I say, stunning. It's a stunning collection. But he's so much. His writing is so much more. I love that collection, but the, the uh, Mr. Gaunt. But this new collection is, uh, you know, it's a guy. It's a guy graduating from, from. Uh, Triple A college to the pros. He's this is this is amazing stuff. But the thing is, is, is he talks. He's a, he's a really an expert lecturer, and he talks about this stuff at panel on panels all the time, seminars and whatnot. 
and we see eye to eye on this, that monsters are monsters and that there's nothing. You know, one of the things that makes me grit my teeth, and it's an honest difference of opinion with the people who say it, so no aspersions, but, oh, Walking Dead isn't really about zombies. That's why I like acting on it or I like writing it, because it's not really about zombies. And I have to say, well, I, I do enjoy the fact that the zombies can represent many many things, many failures in our society. No, they're effing zombies. That's why we're tuning in. They are monsters. And I think it's important for me, the integrity of my work, that when I'm writing about a monster, it's a monster. Uh, there are some stories where I like to leave it a- ambiguous as to whether you can trust the narrator about what's happening. Uh, but generally, when I spring a creature on you, it's, it is what it is. Uh, you may not know the, spe- you know the specifics about it, but it's definitely inimical, and it's larger than life. And they have a tendency. I went. I was going through and kind of sorting through my work, and monsters do make uh, a steady appearance in my in my stuff. And I think that might go back to childhood, because when we were living in the wilderness, we lived in a little log cabin. We were quite aware of the fact that we were in a very hostile situation. You know, there were a lot of things going on around us that weren't weren't safe, especially for little kids and. We had a lot of black bears and things like that in the area would come and raid our camp and whatnot. And so, and of course, my dad, he comes from the old, you know, his dad was a storyteller. Uh, and so my father definitely passed down the oral tradition of telling horror stories, you know, late at night around the campfire type of thing. And I uh, began telling stories to my brothers, and I realized that the ones that really gripped them were the, were the, were the scary ones. And uh, I think it's just something that, from an early age, was very became very central to to my psyche. Uh, the idea that that there are are things bigger than us that that are threatening, and that you have to somehow figure out a way to, to if not coexist, you know, get out of the way. Well, and but you do a great job of mixing those kind of elements with the subterranean elements of our own society. There's a great line in uh, the Croning where you say, "The rich are master cultists," and I think that that is crystallizes a, a fear that is very trenchant right now. It's certainly true, and you mix it in in that book. You have well, we have. The rich, we have the cults, we have the the uh, NSA, the CIA, we have these kind of crime elements, uh, and I think that you do a good job of putting those all in this big kind of murky mix, and we can see that there are points on the line, and we can see some of the lines that connect them, but not all of them, and that's what's really fun for us as readers. Well, I that's the kind of stuff that I I enjoy reading, and, and so that's why I write it. But I have a lot of experience dealing with people who are, they believe in conspiracy theories. Uh, that's, a, that's, a sport, that's a pastime up in Alaska. Talk radio, you're more, how shall I put this, basically you're more apocalyptic, apocalypse-oriented talk radio is, is quite popular up there, or at least it was back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. I don't think much has changed. So many people that I knew, otherwise totally rational, but are burying guns in their backyard because they are convinced that uh, the black helicopters are coming. You know, and it's not your cliched, um, you know, country bumpkin who uh, 
greets everybody with a shotgun. No, I'm the kind of people that I've seen do this work in a suit and tie and and speak in, re- in reasonable, measured tones. Um, you just don't. It just seems to be. It's almost. It's almost like a. Um, I don't want to say a disease, but definitely sort of this uh, kind of coating that gets on everything up there and, and kind of rubs off on many, many people. And so when I'm writing about this conspiracy stuff, uh, it's, because, it's, it's easy for me to do it because I've talked to so many people and heard so many permutations of, of why we didn't land on the moon or, or how the government's coming to get us or whatever. And you know, every now and then there's a there's a little there's a little fragment of truth in there, and that's what I think really makes it scary. It makes it scary for me because there's so much crap flying that it really obscures the little tidbit here and there, what, you know, that we would otherwise maybe uncover. And so, I, I learned a long time ago that what really frightens people is not knowing the whole picture, and then they and then they basically, uh, out of almost whole cloth, create something much worse than I ever could. Uh, I, you're talking to the guy who actually, I think I have somewhere on my site a, a review of a book called uh, Black Helicopters Over America. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, one thing you do very well, too, is to mix in things that, if they're not actual arcane lore, sound like arcane lore. Uh, you know, the disappearance of the loggers at Slango Camp oh, and, yeah. and other things like that. And these kind of what I would call Fortean occurrences after Charles Fort, the author of Book of the Damned. And I'd like you to talk about your uh, how much of that kind of stuff you're interested in or keep track of. Do you have like a little file where when something weird happens, you set it aside for future inclusion in a story? Yes, I do. Um, I'm very much uh, nowhere near as huge a fan, say, as Kate Kiernan seems to be of Charles Fort, but I subscribed to the Fortean Times for a while, read it, and that kind of stuff is always, and continues to fascinate me. I, I love to live in a, in a, you know, a world where Science has explained many, many things. They've taken our warp drive away. They've taken time travel away, or they've tried to. But there's still, you can still kind of hold on to, ah, oh, there's, there's some mystery out there. One of, one of the areas that, that has fascinated me for a long time are, are disappearances. Because there's something intimate about, in a horrible way, uh, there's something very intimate about a disappearance. Whether you're talking about the Ninth Legion disappearing in... Uh, Brittany, or whether you're talking about Judge Charles Crater, you know, or excuse me, Judge Crater uh, vanishing from one side of uh, the vehicle to the other, that kind of thing, or D.B. Cooper, you know, jumping out of the plane, never showing up again, disappearances very much interest me, intrigue me, and I'm also intrigued by uh, cryptozoology. I like the idea that there are not necessarily, uh, you know, what's popular now, of course, is the whole Sasquatch hunter thing. Not that not something huge like some primate, but just you know uh, the various types of squid, or there's a giant spider that we haven't run across, or a serpent, or whatever. And if you go back farther, kind of a it's it's different but related is uh, I'm very interested in paleontology. You know when they when they start looking at um, and you'll see a lot of that in my stories. I'm really interested in the fact that they they dig up fossils of wow this slug was 18 feet long. You wouldn't want to meet this thing. 
you couple that with uh, the Fordian stuff, with, with basically the yeah, paleontology, with a little bit of um, entom- you know, uh, entomology. I'm very interested in ants uh, and various other, other critters um, that sort of form, especially ants, that form um, civilizations almost. Uh, one of the big things I've been working on in stories the last few years is the whole playing with the super colonies that exist around the, around the planet right now. I haven't. I don't think I'll end up doing a novel about that, but it it really was a basis, though, for when I created um, a couple of the of the secondary characters in, in the forest, the, the two doctors. Um, I ended up doing a lot of uh, research into uh, the, the super colonies. So, uh, and and that wasn't even the thrust of the story initially. It just I was doing research on something else and, and stumbled across that. So. Yeah, those are some areas that really interest me. In The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, there are a couple of stories that have a a different feel from, I think, almost the rest of your work. One of them is Vastation, which reminds me a little bit of both Philip K. Dick and Stanislaw Lem. So I'd like you to talk about developing the voice for that particular story. That story is uh, a mirror of my first professional sale back in 2000. 2001, I called Shiva, open your eye. Basically, Bastation, which, by the way, I wrote in response to John Clute, who uh, has sort of resurrected that term and was deploying it at a, at a panel. And I thought, ah, I like that. So <clears throat> I think we were actually disagreeing kind of vociferously about something to do with horror, but be that as it may, I, I nabbed that term. And I kind of wrote a I wrote an answer to myself or in response to my earlier story. Um, this is this this was me, ten years in. You know how would I have rewritten that? Shiva, open your eye. Uh, it does tie in though with stories you're going to see going to see um, either in my next collection, the, the Alaska-based collection, or 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 the next one. Uh, I. What I've kind of developed at this point is I have four or five different strands of stories uh, that, while they all kind of weave together uh, as an you know as an uh, kind of an overall, that each strand though has a, a particular type of story. And the Vastation, Shiva, open your eye. I've actually written a couple more since then that that tie in with those, or that are written in a very similar uh, voice that explores slightly different things. And that is something you're going to see uh, down the road for me is that if you if you read my collections as they come out, you're going to notice these strands and that each one of them, you know, right now each one of them has half a dozen stories, uh, and I'll just be adding I'll be adding to those. Uh, so I have what I call my nameless couple, my nameless couple story uh, um, sequence, which is. Basically, you never, I never give you the name of the couple, but it's always a couple. In occultation, there were, two, there were three of them. One was the title story, one was 30, and one was 666. And they're, they're almost kind of conversation, you know, dialogue-driven stories. Uh, I sold one recently, I had it published recently, that was about a guard and a prisoner having a conversation. And then, of course, I have my Imago, my Imago sequence-style stories, or my, my Children of Old Leech, where the where the villains, you know, uh, and their machinations feature prominently. So 
on a story level, that's what I'm definitely going to be developing is basically expanding these storylines. As far as novels go, right now I, I'm going to finish this crime novel and then I have another uh, horror novel. Uh, so that's pretty much what's going on with me at this at this point. Well, we'll look forward to all of them, and especially uh, when the beautiful thing that awaits us all, that comes out in April? That'll be out in April and from Nightshade Books. I've been speaking with Larry Barron. His newest novel is The Croning, coming out in April, is The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, a short story collection. Thank you for joining me, Laird. Thank you for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.